Good morning. Good to see you. Happy Father's Day, dads. Let's stand up. We have a new song today. It's called Open Up the Heavens. It's pretty simple. It's the song that was just playing as you walked in. Let's sing this together. We waited for this day. We're gathered in your name, calling out to you. Your glory like a fire, awakening desire. Turn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Yeah. Open up the heavens. We want to see you. Open up the floodgates. A mighty river flowing from your heart. Filling every part of our praise. Your presence in this place, your glory on our face, we'll look into the sky. Descending like a cloud, you're standing with us now. Lord, I'm paying our lives. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing.
so happy that you could be here with us this morning. Why don't you take a look around, see who's around you, and say hello to someone new. Alright, if you want to take a minute and have a seat and fix your eyes on the screen for a short video. Happy Father's Day, all you dads out there. That applause was for you. Yeah, and I know many of you are grandpas. I'm, I'm going to be a grandfather uh, at the end of August. This will be our first grandchild. We're very excited. And, you know, what it, what it reminds me of men especially is that God has given us as men so much power for him and for good in the lives of our own kids, of, of grandchildren, even of children and families around us. So never underestimate that. Never, never, ever underestimate how God can use you in the lives of others. So happy Father's Day. We hope you'll be strengthened and encouraged in the Lord today. Uh, Bible camp begins next Monday. Now this is a week from this coming Monday, next Monday, uh, June 26th through 29th is our Bible camp here at Hopevale. It's, it's a big deal. It's a, it's a church-wide time for kids and families in our congregation, but also in our community. And if you are not already part of that as a camper, as a family, or as a volunteer, we want to invite you. I want to urge you uh, to be part of this next week. We need volunteers. You can do everything from being a guide to substituting for a guide, being a greeter, helping with registration, being part of a prayer team. You can do pretty much anything during that week. There's, there's a place for you 
to serve. And by the way, dads, this is a great way to be involved with your kids this week, ages K through fifth grade. So uh, be a part of that this week. You can get questions answered, sign up to volunteer, sign up your camper, your child, as well in the lobby right out here or on our website, biblecampathopevale.org, biblecampathopevale. Uh, check that out. Be a part of this next week. And I have a good authority that Thursday uh, we're going to do a family night with some food and hot dogs, and I think our pastoral staff is actually going to be roasting hot dogs. So it's not a pastor roast, but we're <laughs> roasting hot dogs. So we'll figure out how that works. But anyway, it will be good. So we want to invite you to be part of that. I want to invite now our ushers to come forward, and let's take our offering this morning. And I'm, I'm just, again, encouraged that as we give today in this act of worship, really what we're doing is investing in some of the things that I've just talked about. Uh, young dads, families, children, Bible camp. These are the types of things that we're investing in as we give our tithes and offerings this morning. And so uh, let's, let's pray and thank the Lord for this opportunity to worship him through our through our giving. Let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you for this morning. Thank you for all of our dads. Thank you for our grandfathers as well. And Lord, I pray that you will encourage and strengthen each of our men's hearts here today. Lord, give us opportunity uh, to invest, to encourage our families. Uh, give us strength, whatever season of life we may be in. We pray that you'd help us. And Lord, thank you for this opportunity to worship you through giving. Lord, thank you for the, the chance that we have now and during the week online to invest in our families, invest in our children. So, Lord, we're, we're grateful. We're excited to be able to worship you in this way. And we pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Ken. Hi, gang. My name is Billy. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and uh, glad you're here today. You know, um, Hopevale's a big place, and uh, inevitably every weekend it's maybe somebody's first time. So if it is your first time, I add my welcome to Ken's and I hope you find what you're looking for uh, in the things of God and a church. And sometimes it's hard to find uh, a good church or hard to find God sometimes when you are wondering if he's there. So really hope you find him today and experience God today. Really do for all you new folks. So um, yeah, so, uh, so I'm kind of new here myself. I've been here only about three months as the new worship pastor, and this is my wife, Amy Petty. This is her first time singing today, so this is Amy. So, Yeah, so we've uh, sang this song for uh, a number of years together, and we love singing this together, so we thought we'd uh, just share with you today a little bit, so I hope you, hope you enjoy it and hope you're led in worship by it.
love those words. You've won my heart. That song has such a beautiful theme of submission and surrender. And there's, there is the, I love you, Jesus, and so I will surrender. But more than that, it's Jesus, you loved me first. And now I can surrender to you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And our submission to Jesus isn't out of fear of what he's going to do to us if we don't. The verse before that in 18 says, there is no fear in love because perfect love drives away every fear. We see this theme of love from Jesus over and over again in the scripture where Jesus is calling us out and Jesus is rescuing us and Jesus is coming down and displaying the ultimate act of submission and sacrifice by giving his life. And my prayer for us today, if you'll stand and sing this next song with us, as we sing, is that the truth of this love would wash over us and that it would drive away every fear and enable us to submit to Jesus this morning.
we submit to you today. We love you and we willingly say we belong to you. Help us to remember that you bought us with a very high price, the price of your blood, the price of your precious blood. God, I pray that you would prepare the hearts of every single person in this room this morning to hear your word, to submit to your will, to your ways, that you would wash over us with your love and that every fear, every hindrance would be driven from this place this morning. tomorrow? Well, the mayor has asked me to cut the ribbon. He said my invention saved the town. Aren't you proud of me? Well, um, doesn't this steak look a little big to you? Yeah, it's, it's a big steak. I mean, every steak is not exactly the same size. Did you even hear what I just said? Son, look, look around. I'm not sure this is good for, for people. Maybe you should think about turning this thing off. It's making everybody happy. Everybody except you. When are you going to accept that this is who I am instead of trying to get me to work in some boring tackle shop? Well, you seem like you know what you're doing then. I guess I'll just get out of your way. Conflict. Just even that word kind of makes us feel a little uneasy and unsettled, right? You hear that word conflict and you just kind of cringe a little bit and tighten up a little bit. And I, I think that's actually a good thing. I think that's a good thing because it reminds us that there is there's work to do. Uh, we all experience conflict, every single one of us. And so this series, Collision Course, has been all about learning the principles behind how to navigate conflict. And then these last few weeks have been all about how to put those principles into play in, in very specific contexts. Week one, uh, or a couple weeks back, uh, Pastor Dan talked about uh, church collisions, church conflict. What do you do when church relationships feel off, and how do you navigate that? Last week, uh, he and, and Kathy talked about what do you do with marriage conflicts for those of us who are married, and how do we navigate those? And they did an awesome job uh, talking about, to us about that. This morning, I want to talk about family conflicts. 
And what do you do with um, conflicts that happen in the home? And I, I think, I assume that all of us in here have people that we would call or label family. We put that label on. Um, it may be a very traditional way you look at that, or you know, given our world today, it could be a very untraditional way to look at that. But we all have people in our lives that we would call family. And so this morning, I want to talk about how to navigate the very choppy waters of family conflict. Now, when I say that word family, if you're like me, then a couple different pictures, a couple different images or thoughts pop into your head. And I was trying to think of how do I illustrate this in a way that everybody can understand and see it. So I have a couple of pictures here um, to kind of help, help me with this. Um, the first one is this. The very first picture that pops into my head is, is this one. And this is the perfect family, Right? This is the perfect family. I mean, just look at it. It's, they're all together. They're not all running around all over the place. They're all together. They're all um, at this perfect, beautiful beach on this perfectly photoshopped vacation. Um, they have all of their matching clothes together. They're laughing and smiling through their perfectly expensive smiles. Their hair is all in perfect place outside at the beach. I mean, this is the perfect family. And when we think about family, a lot of times, this is an image that pops into our heads, that there is somehow this perfect family out there. And if you're like me, in, in my deepest and darkest moments, two things about this picture pop into my head. Number one, I absolutely hate it. But the second thing is I desperately want my family to be it. We want to be the perfect family. We think that the perfect family is out there. We wish we were the perfect family, right? You know, the, we... We even see other families and we start comparing ourselves to that family and we think, man, they've got it all together. How did they do that? There's this picture of this perfect family out there. Well, there's the second thought that pops into my head, second picture, and, and this is the best way I could illustrate this. Um, there's my family. <laughs> and we, don't we do this? Don't we draw a very distinct line between these two? Like, there's the perfect family, that's like the unattainable goal, and then there's my family, and I'm, we're never over there. We're never the perfect family. In fact, if the perfect family was flawless, then my family, let's just not talk about that, okay? Uh, my family is dysfunctional. My family is, is flawed to its core, and we, we want to be that, we attain to be that, we try to be that, we think that we should be that, but we know deep down inside we're never going to make it over there. We're never going to be that. It's this unattainable goal for us, but we are always comparing our family to it, and we're always falling desperately short. And before I get too far into this morning's message, I just want to do something that I think we all intellectually know, but I think we need to be reminded of over and over again. And it's this, that this, this perfect family, it doesn't exist okay? It does not exist. It never will exist. It is a figment of someone's imagination that's used to make us feel really bad about our families and believe that we're not good enough and that we never will be good enough. That if our family doesn't look like this, then we've somehow done it wrong. Somebody has made this up. 
It may have been sold to us that way, or maybe we even made it up, but this is a figment of our imagination. This does not exist. So I think we need to do this morning to this what needs to be done with it, and we literally just need to rip it apart and throw it away and say, it doesn't exist anymore. That, it's, it's not a part of our thinking anymore. This, there's no such thing as a perfect family. We need to trash it. We need to get rid of it. We need to stop comparing our family to a standard that's made up and that can never be and should never be obtained. And I think once you do this, once you can intellectually and, and you know, mentally get there, notice what's left. It's just my family. My family. And I want to say something here, whether you, you think it or not, whether you believe it or not, I want, I want to say this because I believe it's true. It's that your family is the perfect family for you. Your family is the perfect family for you. Now, does that mean it's going to be flawless at some point? No, it's not. It's never going to be that way. Every family is messy. Every family is messy. Can you, can you just humor me for a second? Can you just turn to your neighbor and just admit that and say, we're messy? Can you just do that? Like, just be honest, smile at each other and say, hey, we're messy, I'm messy. We're all messy, right? I think, listen, I think there's just some freedom in that. Notice how the room kind of lightened up a little bit. Like, there's freedom in owning the fact that, you know what, there's no perfect family out there. We're, we all have some kind of level of mess. We're all dealing with some kind of mess in our families. So oh, we like to pretend that we have it together sometimes. We like to post online pictures that make it look like we've got it all together. But really, if we're honest, our families are messy, right? I have this picture um, of my family framed in my, uh, in my office, and I love this picture. The, you know, the setting is gorgeous. It's at the bridge in Bridgeport. My wife said there's a joke there somewhere. Um, it's... <laughs> It, there, there is. Maybe it was named after the bridge. I don't know. But anyway, I love this picture because at first glance, as you look at this picture and you look at my beautiful family, there's my wife, Sarah, and our three kids. And oh, it's such a great picture. As you look at that first, you, you might think, man, that family, they're so well put together. They're loving of each other all the time. They must be so polite and so respectful of each other. They never yell at each other. They always listen the first time. You know, they never have to be chased down in the lobby after they steal a donut from the church. <laughs> but the reason I love this picture is the very reason that you just laughed. The, the reason I love this picture is because of what happened right before this picture. Because we had been taking pictures for about like a half an hour. And you know, if you've ever taken a family photo, you know how it goes. Like the end result is never how the process went. And so right before this, my kids were done. They were not having any more of picture taking. They were running around. They were crying. They were fighting. One of them was thinking about jumping off the bridge. Okay, he really wasn't going to jump, I think. Um, but that, he had that look in his eye that said, I'm thinking about it. And, you know, I've been there. I've, I know that look. So it's just this picture is just a reminder to me that, that no, no matter how well put together the picture looks, the truth is usually before or after the picture. And that's the same way in our families too, right? We all have mess in our families, no matter how we like to portray ourselves out, out there, we all know the truth of what's before and after. We all have mess in our families. We all have conflict that happens in our families, big conflict and small conflict. 
And just like every other context where we've talked about over the past seven weeks, the problem isn't that we have conflict. The problem is what we do with the conflict that will either become the resolution to it or become a worse problem. And it's the same when we talk about conflict in our families. And you may be here today and you may be either going through a conflict in your family, you may have gone through one or still going through one that happened a long time ago, or maybe it happened on the way here in the van. Something happened, it escalates, and now you have conflict. We all have different kinds of conflicts in our families. For some of you, it may be a conflict with your parents. You may be even a grown adult and have conflict with your parents and had something go down that causes friction, it caused conflict, and now you have to figure out how to handle that. Or maybe it's, it's like that video clip that I just showed where the son is so desperately seeking his dad's approval, but he can never get it. And so today's Father's Day, and maybe for you, Father's Day means something a little different because maybe there's friction. Maybe you as a father, you have friction with your kids, or, or maybe as a kid, you have friction with your dad, and so this day isn't, isn't as easy for you as it is for other people. Or maybe it's a, a conflict with a brother or sister. What? That never happens, right? <laughs> and maybe it's been going on for a while. Maybe it's, it's turned into this passive-aggressive war of who can not talk the loudest to each other. Or maybe it's between you and your, your child or your grandchild. You know, things happened, words were said, conflicts arose, and now there's this bad blood and tension, and you're trying to figure out what to do, or, or maybe they did something, or maybe now they believe something different than you, and you don't know how to handle that. You don't know, you know you're, you're desperately thinking, okay, so am I right? Are they right? I think I'm right. What do I do with that? How do I handle that? And it's caused a real strain on your relationship with them. See, we, have, we all have these kinds of conflicts going on in our lives and, and how we navigate them. I want to be clear here. How we navigate these kind of conflicts in our family, they not only have ramifications and consequences for us, the ones who are immediately in the conflict, but they also have consequences for future generations if we don't handle them well. And what I mean by the, that is this. You may be here as a parent um, and maybe you have an adult son or daughter, and they have kids of their own, and, and there's conflict between you and your son or daughter. And because of that conflict, it has now consequences of you being able to have influence and be able to see your grandkids. Or maybe you're, you're the son or daughter, and you have kids, and you have conflict with your, your mom or dad, your parents, and, and now you're withholding them being able to have influence and in seeing their grandkids. Or maybe it's with an aunt or with an uncle or something. See, it's, there's this generational thing that happens if we don't navigate family conflict well. And because here at Hopevale we say we are for families, that we want to partner with families, that's a huge value here, we're going to step into this today. And we're going to talk about this very tricky thing called family conflict. In the Old Testament, there's this story of this family that has just some, some really big mess go down, and has a, it's riddled with conflict. Um, and how this story plays out actually tells us big things about how we can navigate conflict in our own families. The story actually centers around King David and his family. Yes, the, the very same King David that God calls a man after his own heart. His family is a mess. It's a disaster. It's a, a complete you know, disaster and full of conflict. 
And I think what we're going to learn through this, there's some negative examples here, but there's examples that we can learn about how we can navigate conflict in our own families. And that story is found in 2 Samuel 15. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up there. Um, you can open up the Bible app to it. You can open up our Hopevale app under the message notes, follow along, or you can follow along on the screens on the side. We're going to actually go to the, jump to the end of the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to see a conflict that arises, but then we're going to work our way backwards to see why it happened the way it did. And there's three major people that you need to know before we get into this story. There's Absalom, who is David's son. He's a grown adult. He has his own family, his own kids. There is Joab, who's David's right-hand man, and then there is David, okay? So 2 Samuel chapter 15, starting verse 1, this is what it says. It says, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, because that's what the people would do when they had a complaint about their neighbor or whatever, they'd come to the king and the king would have the judgment. Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? And he would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge or king in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Now, if you like to write or underline in your Bible, underline that phrase there, I would see they receive justice. This is actually a huge phrase that Absalom is speaking that has a lot of truth into what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time here together, okay? I would see that they receive justice. Verse 5, also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, so he did this for four years, At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I have made to the Lord. While your servant was living in Geshur and Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The the king said to him, go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. They had no idea what Absalom was up to. But while Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, this is important, come, we must flee. And if you like to circle around and circle that word flee, that's a really important word for David to speak there. Come, we must flee or none of us will escape Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And the king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. Absalom, the king's son, has decided that his dad is no longer worthy of being the king. And so he's going to sit outside the city gates and steal the hearts of the people and say, you should make me king because I can give you something that the king won't give you, and that's justice. And so as I read this story, there's a question that I have that I keep, kept asking myself. Why? 
Why would he do this? Why would Absalom do this to his own father? Why would he sit outside of the gate and say, I'm your answer. I'm the solution to your problem instead of my dad, the king. Why would he do that? Well, I think the answer to to the question why is found in what has happened in the past in their family. And so if you go back a couple chapters to 2 Samuel chapter 13, I'm not going to read the whole story, but um, I just want to kind of tell it so you can kind of understand what's going on. We're introduced to some really big family drama that happens in the life of uh, David's family. And to keep it PG for our uh, younger audience here today, I'm just going to kind of go over quick details, all right? So David has two other, other kids that are in this mix. Um, he has a son named Amnon and a daughter named Tamar. Tamar is Absalom's sister. And as best we can tell, Amnon is like a half-brother, but they're all related. They're all brothers and sisters. Well, what happens is that Amnon kind of has the hots for his sister, Tamar. And he takes it a step further by uh, attacking her physically. And, uh, and she tries to say no, but he will have none of it. And he takes advantage of her physically. And this, it's just this big messy situation. Absalom comes in and he sees his sister Tamar just distressed and he says, what's going on? And she tells him what happens. And Absalom is furious. He's so angry with his brother Amnon, but he's calculated. He's quiet about it. And then David, the father, finds out what's going on. And this is where these verses pick up. 2 Samuel chapter 13, starting verse 21. It says, when King David heard all of this, he was furious. He was angry. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, neither good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Absalom is a little more calculated in what he's, in his emotions and what he's about to do. He keeps it quiet, but he still has something in mind. David's furious at what's going on. But I think the next three words are the most telling about this whole story. The next three words are two years later. Two years later. And from all indications, as we read the rest of the story, what those three words mean is that David did nothing about this situation. He got really angry about it and then did nothing about it. He just kind of went on like nothing happened. Have you ever had that happen? You ever done that? Get angry about something and then just kind of pretend like it didn't happen for a while? David did that. He avoided the conflict that was going on in his family. And because he did that, Tamar got no justice. Absalom got more angry because of all of this. And he realized his sister wasn't going to get justice. Amnon looked like he was getting off free in this whole situation. David avoids the conflict. And I think here's where we learn a, a, a big, major uh, point about family conflict. And it's this. It's that avoiding a conflict is not equal to dealing with a conflict. Avoiding a conflict when it happens is not the same as dealing with a conflict. In fact, what happens more is that avoiding conflict now means inviting consequences later. David chooses to avoid this whole thing, and he says, you know what, maybe if I just turn a blind eye to it, if I sweep it under the rug, then maybe it'll go away. Maybe I won't have to deal with it. But what he's actually doing is he's inviting consequences later. It's kind of like when you start, you know, sweeping stuff under a rug, and you go like, oh, well, it's not there anymore. No, it is there, and it's getting worse. 
because we just keep sweeping stuff under the rug. Or maybe if you're a homeowner, it's kind of like if you see mold on your wall and you go, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to paint over it. I'm just going to paint over it. Well, I can't see it, so it's not that bad, right? No, but what happens is even though you can't see it, it's growing under the surface and it's festering under the surface and it's, it's getting worse. It's inviting consequences for later. And that's exactly what is happening with David. And another thing that that David is about to learn is that even if you avoid it, you're still accountable for it. Even if you avoid it, you're still accountable for it. But David avoids the whole situation. And so Absalom decides, you know what? If my dad isn't going to step into this situation, if he's not going to bring justice for my sister Tamar, then I will. And so Absalom comes up with his own justice system and he grabs a bunch of his, his buddies and they go and they kill his brother Amnon. And so David finds out about this and he gets mad again and Absalom flees and he gets banished from, from Jerusalem. And then the Bible tells us that three years goes by. Three years goes by and they have no contact with each other. Absalom and David, no contact. It says that David wants to go to him. He desires to go to him, but he just can't bring himself to do it. He's too angry. And I think another thing that's going on here is that he has just got too much pride to try to resolve this. He just can't do it. And I think one of the the main reasons we don't deal with conflict well ourselves is because we're the same. We allow our anger in our sinful pride to get in the way of resolving conflicts. And so Joab, David's right-hand man, has to find somebody to come to David and to call, basically call him out for not going after his son, for not trying to, to somehow repair this relationship. So this lady comes and she tells him this story and David gets emotionally attached to this story. He's like, we got to do something about that. And she's like, you're that guy. This is happening in your own family. And so that kind of clues David into like, I need to do something about this. And so he tells Joab, I guess, I guess Absalom can come back to Jerusalem. Here's my only condition though. I don't want to see him still. And so Absalom gets invited back to Jerusalem, but he's got to stay away from David. And two more years of the silent treatment goes on between David and Absalom. And both of them are just kind of thinking to themselves that they're right in the situation because David thinks he's right for his anger and Absalom thinks he's right because of his revenge. And eventually, Absalom tells Joab, I want to go see my dad, but here's my condition. I want to say to him, judge me. See if I did anything wrong or if it was just about justice. And you make that decision. So he doesn't think he's wrong in the situation either. And here's these two men father and son, fighting with each other, both thinking they're right and going after each other. The problem is that they both think they're right here. Everybody's fighting to be right and no one's fighting for their relationship. No one's fighting for their relationship. And what I know about family conflict and what I know about conflict in general is that that being right or getting even never resolves conflict. It doesn't. It usually escalates it. It usually makes it worse. But when our families collide, when we have family conflict, the most important thing in that is to fight for the relationship. To fight for the relationship. Not fighting to be right. 
not fighting to, to get even or to exact revenge or even to get justice. The relationship is the thing that's the most important. And neither of these men got that. Neither of these men understood that. And so when they finally get back together after five years of the silent treatment, you know what happens? They see each other face to face, and David basically just sweeps it under the rug. He just looks at him, and the Bible tells us he kisses him, and then that's it. There's no conversation about it. There's no dealing with it. There's none of that. And so Absalom, he's like, there's no justice here. And so the very next thing that we read is exactly what we read before, that Absalom plots his ultimate revenge to get ultimate justice from his father. You know what the saddest part of this whole story is? Is how it ends. Because this is exactly how it ends. Absalom and David never solve their conflict. They never resolve it. In fact, they never see each other again after David goes and runs and hides because this is becoming a pattern in David's life. A conflict arises and he runs from it. Conflict arises, he avoids. Conflict happens, he avoids. He's the king. Absalom you know, has this mutiny coming up. He's the king. He should step into it. He should deal with it. But instead, what does he do? He runs, he flees, he hides. That's what David has been doing. Absalom thinks he's gotten ultimate justice because now he's the king. He's parading around like the king. And what happens is because Absalom, is, we're told, has really long hair, he's riding around on his horse one day and he accidentally gets caught in a tree. And he's hanging there by his hair. And Joab, David's right-hand man, sees him. And he, Joab, the same guy who tried to like resolve, help resolve the family conflict, decides, you know what, I'm going to put an end to this conflict. And he kills Absalom. And that's the end of the story. And it is a sad, <laughs> sad story. It really is. And it just shows us that family conflict is a real thing that can be very serious and needs to be navigated well. And I think there are some major lessons that we can learn, though, through this story, even though it's just this, oh, that's how it ends, really, Sam? <laughs> that's pretty heavy. But I think there's some things that we can learn on how to navigate our own family conflicts better than they did through what they, either they did or didn't do. And so here's some things that I want to share with us this morning that we can learn about navigating our own family conflict. When our families collide, what do we do? Number one, first thing is this. Clarify what's most important. When you have a family conflict, clarify what's most important. If, if David and Absalom had it clear that their relationship was the most important thing there, more important than winning, more important than being right, more important than getting even, or even seeking justice, if their relationship was the most important thing to them, then maybe this story turns out different than it did. And I think the reason that we can let our own family conflicts go on for years and years and years is because not everybody's clear on what's most important in the middle of a conflict. Because we usually fight for what's most important to us. And so if we're not clear on that together, we're going to be fighting for different things. And so I think the important question we need to ask ourselves when it comes to our family members and when we're having a conflict with them is what's most important to you in this conflict? What's most important to us in this conflict? Is it, is it being right? Is it winning the argument? Is it getting them to come to my side of the way I think about things? Is it getting even for what they did to you or what they did to me? Or at the end of the day, is, 
Is my relationship with that person and mending it and repairing it, is that the most important thing? you got to ask yourself, what's most important to me in this situation? And I would suggest that if you want to handle family conflict in a way that honors God, fighting for your relationship with that person should be the most important thing. Why? It's because that's, that's how God handles us. Love your family member as you would love yourself. So we need to clarify what's most important. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. Engage, don't avoid. Engage, don't avoid. David's biggest problem in this whole mess was that he chose to avoid the conflict instead of engaging the conflict. And I'll say it again. Avoiding a conflict is not equal to dealing with a conflict. And David learned that. Avoiding a conflict now means inviting consequences later. David learned that the hard way. I mean, think about it. Had he chosen to engage the conflict early on with his son Amnon and his daughter Tamar, this whole story may have turned out completely different. But he didn't. He chose to avoid. And he invited the consequences later on, not knowing that the consequences were going to be he would lose two sons through this. The consequences for David were devastating because he chose to avoid. He could have navigated this all with his family in a better, healthier way by stepping into it, by leading, by engaging. Sure, it would have been painful. It would have been very difficult, but the end results could have been so much better than they were. Guys, we need to see the pitfalls of avoidance and say to ourselves, if I choose this, if I choose avoidance, this is not going to end well. I'm inviting consequences for later on that I'm not going to want to have to deal with. And avoiding, it's not fighting for the relationship. It's fighting for my own illusion of comfort. It's saying, you know what? I'd rather feel comfortable in this situation than have to engage in it. But the comfort's just an illusion because later on, it just builds and builds. But if we engage, yeah, sure, it may be difficult now, but it may be better for the future if we engage. So engage the conflict. It shows you care. It shows you want things to be better. Number three, believe, don't blame. Believe, don't blame. We've been saying, we have a saying around here at Hopevale, and we say it a lot in the office during the week, and, and I've actually heard it uh, the past two weeks during this series as well, and that, that saying is believe the best. Believe the best. We need to believe the best about our family members and not assume the worst. You know, when there's conflict in our families, we need to start by believing the best about them, not, a, not assigning blame to them right away. Because, you know, in family conflict, there, there's usually a lot of blame going around, like, you did this to me, you did this, you've done this in the past, you've done this. But there's not a lot of belief, if we're honest. But what if our family members knew that we believed the best about them? I mean, wouldn't that make navigating conflict a little easier? I mean, put yourself in this situation. What if you had a conflict with a family member, but you knew that they believed the best about you? I mean, wouldn't it make you want to engage in that conflict? Wouldn't that be a little easier to do then? Now, I know sometimes it's very difficult to believe the best about someone, especially if this isn't the first time that you've ridden the merry-go-round of conflict with them. Well, there's, there's been these times where you've been burned over and over and over again. But believing the best, is, is, it's a choice. And maybe, maybe it's like, I can't believe, but man, I, I just hope this time it's different. 
And so it's a choice to say, you know what, I know you burned me in the past, but this time I'm going to choose to believe the best, and I'm going to choose, I'm going to hope this time is different. And, and I want to say this, this doesn't mean throwing wisdom away. Okay, it doesn't mean that I got to, you know, for, you know I'm going to play like I don't know what has happened in the past. No, this is, it's, it's a wise believe the best. It's saying, you know what, I know what has happened in the past, but this time I'm going to choose to hope that maybe this time it'll be different, but I'm going to be cautious. I think there, it's okay to be cautious as you believe the best. Number four, seek understanding. And I love to, I love to use the words, help me understand when dealing with conflict. Why? Because they aren't overly aggressive. You know, they, they don't put people in a defensive position. It, and it actually gives, it gets to the bottom of how you can resolve a conflict. I mean, if you never, if you never seek to understand why something happened, you can't resolve it. And you can't move on from it. And you really can't avoid repeating it either. When you seek understanding, you're saying, you know what, I care enough about you and I care enough about what you are, are thinking right now to try to see things from your perspective. You know, it's a really practical way that we can live out the great commandment of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And sometimes our biggest conflicts are the result of misunderstandings that have escalated. And so if we're to navigate family conflict, well, we have to seek understanding. And then number five, the fifth thing is pursue peace. Pursue peace. You know, Romans 12, 18, it's kind of the theme verse for this whole series we're in, says this. It says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And we've been reading this verse for the past seven weeks, so we probably should know it by now. But I love this verse, and I love how, I love how it actually is stated in the message paraphrase, because this is what it says. It's, uh, it's straight into the point. It says, if you've got it in you, get along with everybody. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. And the truth is, is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you, the Bible tells us you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So you do have it in you. <laughs> you do have it in you. And so we only have one option as followers of Jesus, and that's to pursue peace with everyone, even our family members that we're in conflict with. And here's what I love about this verse. that It tells us we're not responsible for how they react or how they act. We're only responsible for, how, responsible for how we act. And I think the context of Romans 12, 18 actually helps us see it more clearly. As you read the whole, the whole passage, it says, don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. It's, it's just basically saying, listen, don't go after someone who's wronged you. If you're in conflict with them, if you've got it in you, get along with, pursue peace with everybody, no matter what they've done or how, they've made, how it made you feel. That's the Jesus way, is to pursue peace. And pursuing peace also means extending and receiving forgiveness. These five practices that I've highlighted, actually, uh, they highlight the importance of fighting for the relationship with our family members when we're in conflict. We clarify what's important because we want the relationship to be the most important thing. We engage, not avoid, because we care enough about our relationships to fight for it. We believe and not blame because we know that the relationship is worth believing in. We seek understanding because depth of relationship comes through a real understanding of who that other person is and what they see and what they value. And we pursue peace because all of this is not ultimately about winning or about revenge. It's about connecting with that person on a deeper level and reconnecting with them 
and restoring something that's meaningful to us. We have to fight for the relationship. I mean, can you imagine what your family would even look like if passive-aggressive or maybe even just plain old aggressive conflict could be handled knowing that in the end the goal is resolution, the goal is peace and a deepened relationship, an amended relationship with that other person. But I'm here to say to you this morning, it is possible. It is possible. It is doable. Your family is not too far gone. Your family isn't a lost cause. Your family is not hopeless. Jesus has an amazing story for you and for your family. And it's going to take a lot of hard work. And it's going to be painful at times. And it's going to take a ton of humility. And it's going to take a willing attitude to try. But it is possible. And how do I know that? I know that because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in every single person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. And that is the power that can change you. That is the power that can change your family member. That is the power that can change your story. And that is the power that we rely on when we choose to step into these kind of conflicts. Because when families collide, what we need to do is we need to make the choice to fight for the relationship through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you right now, choosing to do that could be the difference. It could be the difference between living years and years and years of conflict or having an amazing story to tell about what God did through your family and how he rescued your family through this conflict and how he helped you resolve it. When your family collides, make the choice to fight for the relationship. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we love you and we thank you for what you've shown us in your word today. And God, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here who, um, who may be dealing with some family conflict. Uh, they may either be dealing with years and years and years of conflict or maybe it, it's just recent, but they're in the middle of it. And God, maybe they came in here this morning with pretty much no hope and thinking this, there's no way this is ever going to resolve and never going to get to a place that's good. But, but God, through the power of your spirit, I pray that they would have hope, that they would see you for who you are as the rescuer, as the restorer. And that, God, that they would say, you know what, it's worth it. It's worth stepping into it because I want that relationship with that other person. So whatever it takes, I want to step into it because I know you can heal it. I know you can restore it. I know you can do some amazing things that I can't even see right now. So God, I, I pray that you'd bring hope to where there may have been hopelessness. And God, I pray that you would help us step into the difficult work of fighting for a relationship because it's worth it with our family. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's stand up and worship before we leave today, friends.
Sometimes just singing the story of Jesus reminds us that no matter what we're going through and the conflicts that we face, that it's Jesus is who we really need. So let's remind ourselves of that story. Head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at his feet we
handle family conflict matters and navigating it well matters my prayer for you is that you would fight for the relationship with your family members next week we're going to talk about what happens when culture collides and pastor dan's going to bring us that but as you leave from here fight for the relationship with your family members happy father's day thanks for being here